0: Hey, everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. The audience, as, as everyone knows here, everyone in this, this meeting are angel investors, early stage founders or, or executives who are doing angel investing, and we're all really intrigued by the future of venture capital. There's a bunch of innovation happening, and both of you are on the record with both words and dollars arguing that venture needs to evolve. Reid, in addition to being a, Greylock, a, a, a GPA Greylock, you're also a significant LP in a bunch of these new disruptive venture capital strategies, Village Global, of course, with our Luminary Network and, and Scout Network, Sweat Equity, which delivers talent services for equity, Entrepreneurs First, which co founds companies coming to academia. And Chamath, um, you famously, of course, have, have moved away from a traditional venture capital firm. You've called venture firms uh, multivaried Ponzi schemes and uh, are now, are now you know, helping revitalize uh, SPACs. So Chamath, maybe you can go first. What do you think is broken about venture today? And what are your ideas about how to fix it? And then read uh, why are you backing uh, a handful of these
1: new experiments that are trying to do venture differently? I think both of us probably feel the same thing, which is that when we were first in the valley, you know going back to the year 2000, um, even earlier for Reed, the first generation of, of venture capitalists you'd meet were all operators, and they had all been founder entrepreneurs in some way, and so they were um, very sympathetic to the journey of the entrepreneur. And I think that what happens somewhere along the way is what happens in success to a lot of people, which is that they become risk averse. And I think that these early venture capitalists, when they had some success, scaled by adding people who uh, themselves were talented, but had a very different concept of what they were doing, and they viewed themselves as managing risk. And so it became a relatively predictable group of people, and they were essentially minimizing Looking bad, and so you know, whenever a cohort of like reasonably smart people want to not look bad, they just copy each other, and so you end up getting a bunch of like lemming-like bad investment decisions over waves, and 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 that's sort of what frustrated me, and uh, it was basically impossible to swim upstream from that because it doesn't doesn't really matter how excited you could be about a certain thing. If other people aren't invested in, in that idea and want to help support that thing, you basically die on the vine. And um, I think that's what's made, for me, venture problematic. And so, that, so then when you double click into that problem and you look inside of most venture firms, you see fewer and fewer people who've actually built things. And you see more and more people who look and behave and act like a risk manager. And so it just becomes a very non-exciting place. And so then, Then the the most dangerous thing happens, which is then the entrepreneurs who themselves are very scrappy start to morph themselves and change their language and their behavior and their ideas to match what will get accepted because there's an impedance mismatch with the capital and what's acceptable. And then the people themselves inside those firms and double click on that and they say, wow, you know, like it's much easier to just have all these other guys who look like me believe in what I believe, mark up the deal I'll raise a new fund, I'll generate more fees. And now you go four or five funds without ever returning capital. I mean, it, it just, it's its nuts. It makes no sense. So, you know, it was impossible for me to find a like-minded group of people that I could work with at the early stages who were like that. And uh, at the same time, I thought that there was more opportunity in the later stage. So, you know, I think that venture will go through a renaissance at some point again, but um, it needs people like... I think and myself, frankly, to win. And it needs uh, traditionalists to lose.
2: So, and Jamal, and I unsurprisingly agree on the fact of company building versus, uh, I don't think I would put it as risk manager as much because there's this risk question, but like, you know, banker, right? Like it's not just capital or kind of stock picker, but a person who, you know, has built stuff before, knows how to, knows how to partner in doing it. Because sometimes people who build stuff before actually don't know how to partner well. And doing it, they're great athletes themselves. Not not so not such great coaches or partners. So you know you have to look for that kind of combination. But the thing that I I think that I was also being driven by, in addition to let's let's make this be company builders, is you know Silicon Valley and then I think other uh, ecosystems are moving from you know kind of a pure cottage industry to something more of a of an industry. Um, and so different rules start applying because you start having. You know, like, like, for example, how do you how do you reinvent thinking networks, right? That's part of the reason why the village global, it's kind of like, you know, having a whole bunch of network leaders. It's part of the reason why I think about entrepreneurs first, which is all right. So, like, how do we say we recruit entrepreneurial engineers, you know, we put them in a in a place where they're fundamentally matchmaking. They still generate their own ideas. But how do you get kind of more interesting, deep tech? Um, Another one in Silicon Valley here is sweat equity, which is, you know, how do you have the best engineering recruiting services? Uh, tied into these early stage companies in order to make them work, and so you start thinking about this as kind of reinvention at a at a network level, and thinking about now it's not just the cottage industry, but actually in Silicon Valley is a complete network, and that, and then and then operating the network. And you know, I think another thing where I would where I would, you know, we kind of maybe different lenses into some critiques of "quote, quote unquote" traditional VC is to be thinking about it is you have to be operating in networks, and that's how I think part of the reason why like modern VCs you know, um, try to say, hey, how do I have good recruiting services, good customer acquisition services, other kinds of things, in order to uh, really do that. Um, but I think the, the you know, groupthink, I think, becomes endemic. And I think, you know, part of the opportunity that is presented when you get groupthink within a class is you get to, 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 to kind of uh, break left or break right. Um, and, you know, one of the things that I, you know, always appreciated about Chamath and small number of other people is like, okay... How do you think, like, if everyone's going down path A, how do you think about path B, uh, as an example?
0: So, so, Chamath, what's your prediction in terms of the early stage venture as, as an asset class? Um, you said
1: you I think you said it's you hope- trash. Just in terms of returns, it's terrible. Um, uh, you know, you basically are signing up for what is now thirteen-year illiquidity, um, and you're paying, you know, basically like three to four hundred. You're paying three to four hundred basis points. Uh, a risk premium. What does that mean? If the you know public markets can give you 15, 16% a year, you know, the typical venture fund returns, you know, 12 or 13%. So it returns less. So why would you have your money locked up for 13 years where you can't touch it to make two or three hundred basis points less in the public market, which is infinitely liquid? It's a it's a hard proposition. Where so I think the question more is so then where does it go? And I think it's going to very different sources that I think are quite inspiring to me. So one is all of the sort of startup studios and the incubators. I think that those are wonderful. And the reason that those are wonderful is that they give people a chance to coalesce in a very safe space around ideas. And they decouple this idea that you need a whole bunch of capital to start with. Really you don't, you just need uh, a willingness to sort of bank around a concept and not have the intellectual persuasion to go to something easier. And at the earliest phases, I think like incubators will separate themselves and their ability to do that. And I think, like for example, even if you look at YC, like YC was a puppy mill for a while, and now they've gotten back to a really legitimate form of company starting, which I think is much more ambitious and, and exciting, and they have these vertical tracks. That's one. And then the second thing to me that's really exciting is the emergence of these individual Angels, super angels, solo GPs and the mechanisms in angel list to make them functional, because then again, you decouple and you break the groupthink dynamic. And you know, folks, again, like you saw this in the election. The the ability for people to basically, you know, preference falsify at the highest order is incredible. And but when they're in the voting booth by themselves and they have to answer to no one, they're like Trump. Great. Uh, but you're better off in a place where you felt like you could just say that. And I think similarly, solo GPs are in this world where they can just vote with their dollars and not have to justify it to anybody. And so I think what happens is you have a broad distribution of outcomes. There is where you'll find alpha. And I think that's what we have to do. And then the second thing is we need to move the window of liquidity in because you can't have these companies hanging around long in the tooth for 13 years. It doesn't make sense. It's not, that's not an institutional asset class that works at scale. Um, and so this is what, you know, what Reed is doing, what he and Mark are doing, what I'm doing with IPO 2.0, I think are really good too. So those, those three things give me hope that the asset class can be more productive. Well, and
0: that's certainly aligned with, uh, with our views at village, of course. And a lot of the people on this call are, are the solo capitalists, micro fund managers, angels, people trying you're running studios, incubators. So I think all these experiments are, are super exciting. Chamath, you, you've said the word risk a couple of times already in this conversation and, You've said that one of your biggest strengths is assessing risk. And Reid, you as well have talked a ton about uh, taking intelligent risk as one of your superpowers. So I'd love to hear both of you opine on this. Jamath how have you gotten better at thinking about risk over your career? Is there an example of a risk you've taken recently or not so recently that you think has benefited from this evolved judgment? And what advice would you give to the angels and investors on this call about how to be better uh, at, at understanding risk? And then, and then Reid, uh, same to you.
1: Uh, I'll, I'll give you my answer as it is today, which is that I think that there is a continuum of risk. And on one end of the spectrum is what I would call small quantums of capital. And you can define what that means for yourself. And then on the other end are large quantums of capital. Over here in small quantums of capital, my risk tolerance is prone to action. I don't like to think about things too much. I think that it's much more about optionality and the positive optionality of being able to see if something works. And a lot of the times the things that you bet on that you expect to succeed don't. The things you bet on and think marginally can. So there's a just there's just a bunch of unpredictability. So for me, like, you know, I still do a reasonable amount of angel investing and early stage investing, but purely off of my own balance sheet. I'll get an email randomly in an inbox. I kind of like it. I don't think at all about it. You know, the guy wants a million bucks, two million bucks, 500,000. You know, I'll just send it to my team. I'll be like, just wire her the cash and let's just see. So there it's all action. Get, a you know, a hundred bets a year on the field and just see. And then, you know, when I'm writing quantums for me, which are like sort of like 250, 500 million and up, it's all about inaction. And I try to create enormous amounts of time where I don't make the decision. And that allows me to get to the, the level of thinking that I need to be right. Because over here, it doesn't matter that I'm right or wrong. I'm learning. But over here, I need to be right. Because this is where you go out of business. There's the going out of business risk. You know, if I write three or four bad checks at $500 million each, I burn through $2 billion. For me, that's a lot of money. So it's tough. So um, you know, in the last, for example, since the financial crisis, or sorry, since uh, the coronavirus pandemic really started, you know, I've written 500 million of pipes and then now, you know, another 250 odd million of these facts. And uh, it's taken me a long time, but I've gotten really good at just going deep into the process, immersing myself. I don't respond to any emails. I, it's like, you know, I, I don't listen to anybody. I come to my office, I lock myself in and I'm just here. I'll be randomly wasting time listening to podcasts, reading, but I'm always just thinking and letting it marinate. I get to an answer, but over here it's just constantly firing: fifty thousand, 100,000, 500,000, I don't think twice, and I let it bake.
2: So I think the parameter of capital, obviously, and kind of risk assessment is a is a very good one. Um, I tend to look at these kind of questions of how do you know that you're taking intelligent risk? Because risk is one of the things where if you're if you're handling it uh, well. It can be a huge differentiator in uh, returns, in success, et cetera. And so um, part of it is you think, okay, well, what are the kind of mechanisms? Well, um, one of them, the ones that I most like is when you take kind of contrarian risks um, and are right. Now, that's the hard part, of course. Uh, and so what you do is you say, okay, what would smart, why would smart people not think this is a good deal? And what do I know that they don't know? And I think this kind of uh, lends a, a, a question for how you take intelligent risks because you say, okay, what are the real risks in this? And then why do I have a theory that the risk, that, that, that we can navigate that risk? The risk may not play, may not play, blow up. Like, for example, you know, Chamach was mentioning Airbnb. This has kind of one of the funny storied uh, kind of Greylock investment things because when we were, we were discussing at the partnership table, David Z, who, who, who I love, part of the reason I'm at Greylock, looked at me and said, hey, every venture capitalist has to have a deal they're going to they're gonna fail on. Airbnb can be yours. Very similar to, to Chamath's reaction. Now, part of the thing I love about David is he came back to me six months later, numbers had, and Jane said, I was wrong. I was wrong. You were right. What did you see? And I said, well, look, you were right about the fact that there could be some horrific event that, that quelled the growth. There could be regulatory, et cetera, et cetera. But if it didn't play out, if those risks didn't play and they weren't necessarily going to play, then you have something huge. And that's when you kind of look at this as a as a whole portfolio. So part of being and, and, and Reed, can I just jump in, one of the things that, that I think yours you're really interested in with respect to risk is
0: how you take risks on people. And many of the angels yeah. in this event are making founder bets fundamentally. You know, it's day zero, it's a it's a guy and a gal in a garage. Um and, and you have this incredible, incredible superpower of being able to not let certain flaws overly cloud your judgment. People can be flawed and still be backable. People, people can have weaknesses and still have unbelievable strengths. And you can see yeah. those strengths, at least in my experience. How do you think about risk as it relates to betting on founders or betting on colleagues or team members?
2: So the risk you, you, you take and the risk you shouldn't take. For example, a risk you shouldn't take is if you think the person is, is kind of like um, you know, ethically challenged or you know, a deceptive uh, you know, it doesn't understand like fundamentally partnering with you. It's one of the reasons the piece of advice I give to entrepreneurs is present the risks that you see in the business so you can start working on them and have a genuine partnership in, in, in doing it. Those kinds of risks, you know, once you once you get there, you're like done, right? You just can't navigate any of the rest of it, you know, good luck, we're out. The kinds of risks you should take are, you know, for example, classically is, oh, you should only invest in people who started coding before they were 12. Well, then you wouldn't invest in Brian Chesky there's heuristics. Like if they started coding before they were 12, there's interesting characteristics that are likely to be there. That's useful. Mostly you kind of look at, are they learners and are they willing to also work with other people? So, cause no one is all strengths, right? Um, anyone who's like, oh yeah, they're all great at everything. That, that That's a huge mistake. And if you get that, then you can look at what are the risks you might be taking with this person and the most often one that I find entertaining when uh, successful entrepreneurs go, oh, that person's really, or sorry, successful investors. This is a little bit the traditional thing. Like, oh, that person's really arrogant. You are know, like, actually, in fact, uh, arrogant people who are really hard, hard driving, maybe irritating at a dinner party, but very successful. <laughs> right, that's, that, that, that's awesome. Um, look, we're going to shift to a question from Athena
0: Karp. Uh, we can put her on stage. Uh, Sheila, Athena, you had a question about, uh, about Silicon Valley and its, uh, and its future.
1: Well, thanks, thanks for joining and um, really appreciate the wisdom shared so far. Uh, it's been, been really um, fresh and interesting content. I think one of the questions I have um, representing typically the Tel Aviv ecosystem is, um, and especially with COVID, maybe making marketing and sales in certain elements less material than having very strong sound tech. And or healthcare tech AI technologies Mm. that can pivot much easier than others. So, wondering if you guys feel um, we've hit the peak in Silicon Valley, and will there be different ecosystems, or what will the attributes of emerging ecosystems be uh, in your mind?
2: Jamal, do you want to go first? You want me to? I go ahead, please. Right. So, I think we. I think the answer is both. Um, I think that we've been over the last twenty years. We've heard a lot of you know peak Silicon Valley, this housing crisis, peak Silicon Valley that, you know, uh, lots of capital, too much capital uh, chewing things around, immigration difficulties, and actually, in fact, I think Silicon Valley will continue and strength even with the kind of COVID and the and the kind of the the fact that there's a bunch of movement out. I think it's just the same things that lead to that density of urbanization, anything in headquarters, the cities, the Silicon Valley. I think. Will still be there uh, post vaccine, et cetera. Now, the great news is, is I think that this that we've already seen even pre COVID, um, other ecosystems flourishing. I think it gives them more of a sense. One of the things that we've been doing at Graylock, we've actually already made multiple investments this year in places outside of Silicon Valley because it's pretty easy because you're doing it all through Zoom, et cetera. And so I think that that so I think the short answer will be both.
0: And, and, Chamath, just quickly, are you long or short in the valley over the next 10 years?
1: Yeah, I actually think the coronavirus pandemic has been the salvation of Silicon Valley. It, for exactly what Reed just said, which is that it's forced people to break away from this whole idea that, you know, all of life's, you know, goodness exists between San Francisco and, and Palo Alto, not even Mountain View. Uh, and that's just kind of nutty and just kind of reductionist and lazy thinking. Um, and so the fact that you're forced to now go abroad is good. I think, like like I said, and I, I don't mean to be too nostalgic, but it's like I think the best of Silicon Valley is really a mindset where you're celebrating failure, you're celebrating heterogeneity, not homogeneity, you're, you're finding ways to cooperate because you don't feel like you are competing over scarce resources. I really felt like the last few years uh, that wasn't the case. And so I think now is a good way to just have the pendulum swing back to what it was like. Yeah.
0: Uh, like- then- so, so Athena, we have another question. Thank you for the question, Thank Athena. I appreciate it. Uh, Sander Daniels, do you want to do you want to uh, come up ask about SPACs?
1: Yeah. Hey, Jonathan Reed. Thanks for being here. My name is uh, Sander Daniels. I'm one of the founders at Thumbtech. My question um, is about SPACs. So, do you think SPACs are an enduring? alternative to companies going public, or do you think they're a point-in-time trend that's only uh, popular until direct listings with simultaneous fundraising is permitted on the New York Stock Exchange and NASDAQ? I'm I'm going to be really blunt. I think your friend that is asking that question is well-intentioned, but is not really thinking from first principles. Neither of the people that voted that thought that that question was good. Uh, it's, it's, it's kind of like any instrument. You know, you could take a pencil and a piece of paper and write, you know, The Great American Tragedy or you could write a Dr. Seuss book. You know, you could write some uh, really incredible tomb or you could just write, you know, uh, chicken scratches. So the question is, what is the goal? I think that the goal is you want to align yourself with partners who can help you thrive for the duration of how long you intend to build a company. And going public is sort of eight point in what should be a multi-decade plan if you really want to try to build something enormously valuable. And in as much, I think there's a big problem today in the public markets and the private markets, which is that there's just not a good translation layer for what your plans are. So, for example, I'm sure or maybe you guys don't know this, but if you go public in a traditional IPO, you can't present a forecast for your company. Now, think about that. When yeah. you raise capital in the private markets, you actually show the future. Because what are people buying? They're buying the future. Now, you can only imagine the mindset when all of your presenting is the past. And there are all these tight guardrails. I saw that Todd McKinnon, is Todd McKinnon, maybe the CEO of Okta, he tweeted on Twitter, like, how is Chamath allowed to say these things? If I had said these things, you know, I would have had the SEC up my ass yeah, no, no shit, Sherlock. That's the whole point of like why this whole process is broken. If you spend all your time looking in the past, you can't describe the future. Now, in the case of Todd and Okta, it's a beautiful business, but it still took a little while for people to really realize what it was. And if you could have skipped all of that confusion in the middle, skipped all the volatility in the middle and just got to the punchline and had people that were there to support you it would have been better. You could have raised money better at cheaper rates faster. You could have consolidated market quicker. And now it's not, you know, it wouldn't have been Okta plus Ping plus nine other people. Maybe it would have been Okta and the valuation could have been three times bigger. So it's not to take away from what Todd has done. It's to sort of give you guys an insight to the fact that if you're really trying to have a winner-take-most or winner-take-all outcome, speed is important and the public markets can really slow you down. So the thing with SPACs are it's a super fast time to market. You have a exact price up front that you decide to underwrite at that point, just like a private round. You can raise as much or as little money around it that you want. And the most important thing is if you have a good partner, you can explain the vision of the plan for the next five to 10 years. And that gets into the water table. And once you do that, that gives you the chance for people to actually want to own this business for a decade. And in the publics, I actually think you could see people owning things for a decade because it is liquid, you know? So that, that's my view. I just think it's a, I th- I do think it's here to stay. I think that uh, direct listings are kind of interesting. I, I did one with Slack. I think it's kind of like a little bit of a long walk from a short period, to be quite honest. I think people hear about the uh, navel-gazing technicalities of it, but um, I think SPACs are just much simpler and more straightforward. Reed, do you want to so, go for a hot take on SPACs and we'll go to the next question?
2: Yeah, so um, chamat has been doing them longer. Uh, actually, plus one to, to the things he said. Although I do like Dr. Seuss, uh, so I think that's a good, that's a potentially good outcome. Um, what I would say is the other thing, in addition to, to what Chamat said, and so I think they are here to stay. It's a new vehicle. Is it also gives you another chunk that's kind of at uh, adding VC capabilities to these companies because it gives you a chance for a kind of a concentrated ownership position and help and kind of network going on. So I think that's another thing that's advantageous to, to to uh the stack process.
1: Can I can I give you an example? Like look, let's take Airbnb, right? They're they're in the middle of a process, so we, we won't talk about it. But let's put let me put it to you this way. In a traditional IPO process for Airbnb, I'm willing to bet dollars to donuts that what happens is it will get comped to booking.com. And the minute you do that, they are going to trade on room nights. Now you can take all the grand complexity and vision and drive that that team has, which has built an incredible company and it'll get reduced to one bullshit metric. And that is what the traditional process will do. Now take that same company and put it through, let's just say, you know, Reed and Pincus were the, were the guys that did it. The conversation is completely different. They can talk about what they want to talk about experiences, the long value of like how you're creating all of these interesting patterns. Like it's, it's just completely, completely different, and you can't do that in a direct listing either.
0: Awesome. Sander, thanks for the question. Uh, Dan Turan we'll, we'll uh, bring you on stage. Why don't you introduce yourself? And we're going to shift gears and talk about the tactics a little bit more of angel investing and your question on check size. Uh, was interesting. Go for it, Dan. Great. Yeah. Hey, so this is a little bit more of a, uh, I'm Dan. I founded a company called Managed by Q and then was on the exec team at worked tragically, for, for a hot minute um, and left in October. Yeah, my question is a little bit more tactical. I think there's a, there's a bunch of folks in this group that have, have recently had some liquidity and are starting to do angel investing, um, sort of for the first time, uh, and or are raising rolling funds or whatever. I'm curious, like tactically, how do you think about uh, check sizes at the early stage when you're really just trying to start to build a portfolio and get a feel for um, for, for investing? I think both uh, Mike had asked a question around stage as well. Just how do you think about sort of starting out to build a portfolio as an angel or seed investor?
2: Well, a little bit like what Chamath was saying earlier, I would say that um, make sure you're thinking portfolio. I mean, if you have deep, deep conviction in one particular thing, then fine, uh, you know, kind of back up the truck. But back, um, you know, when, when Chamath was, and I were both doing angel investing, Chamath still is apparently. <laughs> um, the um, uh, it, it's kind of like make sure you have a portfolio. So it's kind of like whatever that check size is over it. Like if you say I have X dollars make sure it's like a 20th or, you know, like, you know, that kind of thing as, as part of doing it with relatively selective doing it. Now, the other thing I would add to angel investors, um, and I think this is still true, even with the, you know, kind of challenges in, 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 in current VC is the best way you can predict, are you on track is what is the next financing round look like? Did a smart person lead that financing round? You know, whether or not the smart person was a smart VC, etc. And that's a little bit of how to condition like, which things you should be doing this frequently, um, you won't really have good metrics. You're making the earlier kind of judgments that Ben prompted me on about people and a back of the envelope uh, number. But
1: that, that's how I would look at it. I think that um, portfolio construction is really um, something that's somewhat of a lost art. You, had, you mentioned a comment in, in here, which is that on what planet does Silicon Valley celebrate heterogeneity? My point is, I agree with you. I don't think it has over the last five or six years. There's been too much copycatting But my point is that wasn't the case, meaning the surface area was a lot different 10 or 15 years ago. You'd have a company and you wouldn't have nine competitors behind it. So you had a lot of room to play around and find your niche. And, you know, there there was, as a result, there was a lot of really interesting, non-obvious innovation. How we go back to that is, you know, I think, again, in the earliest stages, I'm the most hopeful. And if you really take to heart what portfolio construction means, you can Uh, make that happen. So if if I was starting out angel investing, I would take this quantum of money. Let's just say I had a million dollars that I was willing to allocate. I would think about that as, you know, kind of 20 companies. I would make the same quantum of capital because I'm telling you the a priori ability to size is impossible. Hmm. Right. And so you might as well just make 20, 50 K checks. And again, at some point in success, you'll get to this place where, you know, now you can start to be super risk on and size but that's going to be many years in the future and you should do that once you know you know what you're doing yes. and then you, know, you can mortgage the house and sell the things and blah 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 and then you can make the, the multi-million dollar bet but i would start with like you know take a million dollars okay if that's a number it's 20 checks of 50k and then i would try to sort of not be overlapping so meaning you can create a heterogeneous portfolio and the reason is because that's how you will identify where the alpha is yeah. Right. Having seven food delivery businesses in a portfolio of early stage investments is fucking dumb. You wouldn't do that, right? Yeah. Um,
0: awesome. th- th- thanks, Dan, for the question. Um, is it diff- different topic, Shamath. You've um, you've called social media businesses that hook us and addict us immoral on some level. Should the angels in this call with a moral compass not invest in startups that employ some of the growth hacking techniques that that you helped uh, develop back in the day?
1: No, I, I, I think. No, I I kind of view it like folks on this call and, you know, Reed and I back in the day, we're like farmers. All of a sudden, like, you know, we find these ingredients and we sell these ingredients. And so, you know, ammonia, there's nothing wrong with ammonia. There's nothing wrong with tar. You know, when you first use those things to make a cigarette, there's also nothing wrong with that. It's the point when you realize that cigarettes cause cancer. uh, That's when you start to become immoral. Um, And so, I don't know, I I kind of think like, I, I don't think you should judge the tool. I don't think you should judge the instrument. I think that tools and instruments evolve and then morals and a moral attitude around things evolve. And that's where you do have to have courage. Like I took a lot of flack because the whole commentary was, hey, hold on, you made so much money at Facebook and how dare you comment? And I'm like, okay, but like I never was trying to, become this fucking rich and i've always kind of said what i believe because i like to go to bed with a clean conscience so take the fucking money away i'd rather tell the truth um and so i do think that there is a point where once you know you have to make your own moral judgment by the way it can also be completely okay um but you just have to be able to own the decision and not judge other people for it so that's my got it
0: okay awesome uh michael magano you want to come on and uh, and ask your question Hey, guys, I'm Mike. Um, I'm one of the founders of Anchor now at Spotify. Uh, Thanks for doing this question that's sort of related to to Dan's line of questions. The previous question Um, for early stage angels, people that are new to angel investing, um, obviously, you know, most often we're doing we're doing early stage how important do you feel like it is to stay focused on early stage or would you recommend de-risking by diversifying into later stage if you can get the access? You know, I'm doing mostly seed, but every once in a while I see an A or a C or something like that. It's the same risk. It's just
1: more money, which is crazy. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, I wouldn't. Yeah, I wouldn't go stage risk. I mean, some portfolio management's a good idea, but it's not like, oh, look, I'm de risking or portfolio managing because I'm doing later stage. That's essentially. Mm-hmm. Chamath and I would have the same point of view there. It's 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 active decisioning, and then as you put more capital in, um, a little bit like what Chamath was saying earlier, as you put more capital in, then you have to think more about it, and you have to have a, a higher probability being right.
0: Right. That makes sense. Cool. Simple question, simple answer. Thank you, guys. Um, we're waiting for the next person to go into the green desk question, but read quickly, Turner Novak asks, do you think, uh, do you agree with many folks' predictions that LinkedIn will be unbundled? <laughs> it's, the, it's the meme on Twitter that never refuses, like every month people come out and, and start attacking LinkedIn saying it's ready to be unbundled. There are going to be all these vertical competitors. What's your hot take?
2: Well, I haven't seen it yet. Um, obviously, there's, there's times where you get stuff that's in-depth enough of what you're doing, like, for example, GitHub or something else that says that's a different, distinct area from LinkedIn there's a value in the generality given that, you know, it isn't that, for example, you know, the classic one that usually people talk about is doctors, like doctors don't just talk to doctors and doctors aren't the only referral to other doctors for patients and other kinds of things. And so there may still be that thing there, but the general thing is also very useful broadly, Um, but you know, it's not like, it it depends on depth and configuration of market and so forth. And I'm certainly not, it's not a religious point of view. Sean, do you want to come on stage and uh,
0: ask your question about Peter Thiel? Hi, Chamath. Hi, Reid. I'm the founder and CEO of Placement.com. I'm curious if either of you subscribe to Peter's views on technological stagnation. If yes, I'd love
2: just a a small there. And if no, which sectors lead you to hold a more optimistic view than he does? Uh, Well, I'll just go first. I mean, uh, because I argue with this with Peter a lot you know, he's like, oh, we didn't get our flying cars, although maybe we're about to, you know, and, da, 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 da. and actually, I think that the broad answer is the 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 digital realm, artificial intelligence, everything else. So while some areas have been much slower, these areas of acceleration apply to all these others, that doesn't mean that we shouldn't also do. And I think this is one of the things that Chamath has been doing a good job of beating the drum on and investing in. It's like hard tech and other kinds of things as well, and make sure we, we get there. But I think that's part of it. Like, the one exchange that I saw that I thought was really interesting is Peter saying stagnation. And then Stephen Johnson said, you know, by not having faster planes, and Stephen Johnson said, well, that's because you think that what people most care about is the speed of the plane versus safety and getting everywhere. And if you actually look at like the evolution of the of the plane industry, what it was really going to is safety and getting everywhere. Now, I think we're about to see speed too, because I think the supersonic planes are, you know, you know boom and others are, are actually going to start delivering in useful ways, but... Uh, that, that's kind of a breadth of it. Shamath. I don't know if you
1: had anything. Yeah. Do you mind. have a hot take,
2: Shamath? Otherwise we can.
1: Yeah, I just think technology is inherently deflationary. And so I think we confuse stagnation and deflation because it, 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 rears itself in the same thing, which is that, um, you know, we give more for less so people get lazy. Okay. Thanks. Thanks, Sean. Thanks for the question. How do both of you think about your legacy? Um, what are you
0: trying to, at this stage of your life, you've made, both of you have made a ton of money, had a ton of success, ton of impact on the world. When you think about the next twenty years of your life, what are you looking to to accomplish?
2: Oh, the so small question for the last. Chomath, do you want to go first? Or do you want me to?
1: Uh, well, I,
0: and maybe and maybe I, Chamath, you can go first very, because you've you've reflected publicly about like how much res- reflection you've been engaged in these last few years, and like how you've evolved your worldview to some some extent based on that.
1: I uh, I have a very specific goal, which is I think that I can compound over the next twenty years, sort of more than hundred billion odd dollars or so. And I want to apply all of it to climate change. And there's one thing that I think that I would like to sort of know that I burned all the money on, which is just some form of practical, efficient carbon sequestration. Uh, I think that that would be an incredible thing to give to my kids. That's really honestly, like I, I spend a lot of time investing to me, it's feedstock. It helps me refine my risk taking ability, but I feel like I'm a prepping for, a decision in 30 years where it's going to be all in on one thing, and it's that. I would really like to do that.
2: Well, so actually, so I can give an answer that gives an interesting contrast because I've been actually doing more of a kind of a venture portfolio approach. So I have been doing some stuff, like with, you know, part of the my hard tech investing in, in, in fission and fusion is, is partially in the climate change arena, but also kind of like, you know, how do you get uh, good entrepreneurial ecosystems? How do you uh, help, you know, kind of like get the, Next generation of of you know kind of education and you know kind of um, other kinds of things. So it's kind of I'm I'm taking more of a of a venture approach across a number of things versus versus a the the lunar uh, moon bet. Uh, the closest to the lunar moon bet I've gotten so far is the Stanford uh, Human Centered uh, AI Institute with a bunch of kind of risk uh, grants to try to make those uh, the catalyst in AI technology uh, much better across you know all the different industry.
0: And, and Shabat, just before going to the final question, just on climate change, what's like the, for people who want to learn more and engage, and obviously it's top of mind for all of us on the West coast these last few weeks, what's one book resource organization person who you've learned the most from with respect to climate change?
1: In fact, that's honestly, Ben, I couldn't give you a great answer. It, it's just all over the place. The, 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 the people I've learned to learn from the most has been on Twitter. I asked folks to just send me, you know, some ideas and some write-ups. I got a thousand of them within two weeks. I've been, and they're all seven pages. It's this fucking 7,000 pages. So I'm like, uh, you know, I'm like a thousand pages in, but I feel like I've learned more from that than the internet. And uh, we all know what the problem, what sorry, what the solution is, just is that we haven't pushed the boundaries of science to really be able to figure it out yet. And I think that uh, that's just going to require a lot of energetic people and a lot of money.
0: That's awesome. J.D. Ross, I want to bring you up. We'll end on a sort of oddly tactical, hyper-in-the-weeds question, but such is the nature of uh, the passage of time here. There's been some chat about seed stage pricing and Series A pricing and risk. Do you want to just recap your, your view and question there, and if we have a sec, we can react.
1: Yeah, absolutely. J.D., I co-founded a small company called Open Opendoor. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it seems like seed stage pricing is getting more expensive on a risk-return basis right now than A B a and B stage. Curious if you guys uh, agree, disagree, and you know, how, is, how you see that evolving over time.
2: Well, I guess what I would say is I think that there's this kind of because so many people are focused on technology as part of the future, I think there's inflation of pricing across the whole thing. And so it becomes one of the things you have to be you have to pay attention to um, at all ends of the stack. And so I'm not sure that it's seed versus A and B, as much as you know, capital going into tech means that all of the pricing is inflating. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I really agree with Reed. I think a great idea, by the way, I just want to say the quality of the people on this fucking thing, it's just like, it's out—it's outrageous, Ben. So congratulations. and Thank you for including me, but you guys should be, you know, your individual fund, if there's a way for you to like weave together and partner. You guys will compete with Sequoia and benchmark to do series A's as well. I mean, Holy shit. Like it's, it's really incredible. It just occurred to me. Like, yeah. You know? Well, on that
0: fantastic note, J.D., thanks for the question. Chamath and Reid, thanks so much for for joining us, and uh, we'll see everyone soon. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you. Check us out at
1: villageglobal.vc.